Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Friday, October 1st, 2021. We made it through another week and we are live. Hope everybody's doing well today. It's been a very busy day. I was on Roland Martin Unfiltered today. Some of you all saw Roland Martin Unfiltered. So I was on for two hours. Uh, we'll share one or two excerpts from uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered on our Sunday show. We're here two hours on Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I got to talk to uh, Felonius Floyd, uh, brother of George Floyd uh, today. He was a uh, last minute guest on Roland Martin Unfiltered. So we'll share that uh, conversation on our Sunday show. All right, so today um, I want to talk about, give you an update on the story that we've been covering here. And this deals with Bruce's Beach and the beachfront property uh, that was purchased in 1912 by um, the Bruce family, the, um, by the Bruce family. And this property was uh taken in 1924 by eminent domain okay willa and charles bruce okay african-american couple purchased this property in 1912 purchased the property for 1225 dollars in 1912. it was taken by eminent domain um in 1924 and we have been talking about the uh, effort from the descendants of Charles and Willa Bruce to get the land back. The beachfront property that is in Manhattan Beach in Los Angeles County, the beachfront property is valued at approximately $75 million, is valued at approximately $75 million. And the purchased this property they built a lodge on it they built a cafe um they built the dance hall they had all these they had all of this uh, uh, uh dressing tenants uh with bathing suits uh for rent they had all this on this property and it was taken through eminent domain they received threats from the ku klux klan etc well governor gavin newsom has uh, signed into law uh, a bill to return the property, SB 796, to return the property to the descendants of Charles and Willa Bruce. Okay, we're going to talk about that. Um, this is a big story. And there, there's other property that has been taken from African-Americans through eminent domain. Uh, there was a segment I was watching from MSNBC uh, uh, that talked about how um, from 1949 to 1973, uh, you had so much property taken. Um, there was about, there's approximately a fi uh, 1 million people displaced because of eminent domain and two thirds of those people were African-Americans. Okay. In the U S 
1949 until 1973, um, government officials executed 2,532 projects in 992 cities, displacing 1 million people, two-thirds of whom were African-Americans, okay? And we've talked about the expressways coming through our communities and wiping out businesses, wiping out homes like I-375 did uh, in Black Bottom in Paradise Valley here in Detroit. Same thing happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay, I-244 came through in Tulsa, Oklahoma, wiping out businesses, wiping out homes. And on Tuesday, September 28th, the three remaining survivors of the Tulsa race massacre went to court and they are seeking reparations. Leslie Benningfield Randall, Viola Fletcher, and her brother Hughes Van Ellis, all are over 100 years old. They are. They were in court uh, on Tuesday, September 28th, and they are seeking uh, some type of reparations because of what they lost during the Tulsa race massacre, June 1st, 1921. We know that the 100th commemoration of the Tulsa race massacre took place June 5th, uh, June 1st, 2021. Uh, it has been made a day of remembrance, a national day of remembrance. We know there was all types of media coverage, every media outlet in the country and some international media outlets were in Tulsa, Oklahoma for the 100th year commemoration. So we're going to talk some about what happened in court on Tuesday and that uh, court cases presided over by District Judge Caroline Wall, W-A-L-L, District Judge Caroline Wall. Uh, so we'll talk about that as well. A hundred years after the Tulsa race massacre, survivors and descendants continue to seek justice in court continue to seek justice in court. Now, also, we have um, uh, a new 10-week online course starting up on Sunday, October 3rd, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Class number one is starting up. This is going to be uh, 10 consecutive Sundays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you haven't registered for that class yet, be sure to visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You can register for that class. It's a 10-week online course. We deal with thousands of years of history and what led up to uh, the transatlantic slave trade taking place. We do the class live. All of the sessions are recorded. All the sessions are recorded and archived. You can go back and watch it anytime. So if you miss the class, you can go back and watch it. You still have access to the entire course even after the course is over with. So next year, if you want to go through and watch the entire course all over again, be my guest. You can do that. Okay. All right. So you can register for the class. As soon as you register this bonus content, you can watch, and you can join us in class on Sunday, 12 noon to 2 PM Eastern standard time. Uh, the class is regularly $130 is on sale, uh, $80 ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa 
understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school. And Kemet's one of the original names for Egypt. Those who came to the um, screening of the film Hapi, the role of economics and development of civilization that we had this past Sunday, uh, September 26th at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African-American History. And Dr. Leonard Jeffries, one of my teachers was there. He was on the panel. I moderated the panel discussion. Brother Taki Grant and Sister Felicia were there. They're uh, director and executive producer of the film. So you heard some of us talking about ancient Africa and ancient uh, Kemet as well. All right. So on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct your own behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself, what you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you can control the circumference of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We deal with current events and history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, to 22828. To sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T. The 22828, the sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right, I want to jump into this first story here, dealing with Bruce's Beach. Uh, so I read a few articles on this. There was a, a, a good article from uh, NBC News, and then CNN had a, um, a really good article on this as well. Uh, we're going to go to clip number one here, uh, Jalen. So... NBC News has uh, an article here uh, after California moves to return Bruce's Beach to black family, a push to recover other seized land, a push to recover other seized land. Uh, and there's also a good article as well from um, uh, CNN. OK, but if we look at this, I'm going to pull up the article here from uh NBC News. So with uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, governor of California, on Thursday, September 30th, uh, signed into law SB 796. SB 796 is a bill to return uh, the beachfront property in Manhattan Beach uh, to the descendants of uh, the Bruce family. OK, Charles and Willa Bruce. So Governor Gavin Newsom signed this bill. Uh, the beachfront property is in Southern California. And they were uh, the Bruce family was stripped of their land and driven out by the Ku Klux Klan nearly 100 years ago. Stripped of their land and driven out by the Ku Klux Klan nearly 100 years ago. Now, California lawmakers um, this month unanimously passed. So would it would be September, September. 2021 unanimously passed uh, the law SB 796 to allow the return of what was once a thriving coastal resort that catered to African-American residents when racial segregation barred them from many beaches. What is known as Bruce's Beach, 
what is known as Bruce's Beach in Manhattan, in Manhattan Beach, in Los Angeles County, was purchased in 1912 by Willa and Charles Bruce. Now they purchased it for uh, $1,225, $1,225, okay, in 1912. And 1912 is even before the uh, Great Migration really starts, which is basically 1915 to 1970. On this land, on this beachfront property, they built a lodge, a cafe, a dance hall, and dressing tents with bathing suits for rent on land that now houses the Los Angeles County Lifeguard Training Center. Okay, now the land is owned now by Los Angeles County since 1995, and the land was taken by eminent domain by Manhattan Beach officials in 1924. Invoking eminent domain, Manhattan Beach officials seized the land from the Bruce family in 1924. Uh, Kavan Ward, who is an activist and has been helping uh, one of the people involved in helping them uh, get their land back, the family get their land back. Kavan Ward um, founded a new organization called Where Is My Land? Where Is My Land? that is dedicated to helping African-American families with similar stories reclaim what once belonged to them. Kavon Ward, African-American female, said, this country always liked to say, you can make it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, and, and Kavon Ward founded an advocacy organization called Justice for Bruce's Beach last year, Justice for Bruce's Beach. But she also founded a new organization called Where Is My Land? Now, she said these people were doing that, pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps, despite racism, despite threats from the Ku Klux Klan. And she said they were building community and spreading the wealth within the community and enhancing other black people. And it was all stripped away. It was all stripped away. It was through her work with Bruce's Beach that Kavon Ward founded a new organization called Where Is My Land? Where Is My Land? And it's dedicated, Where Is My Land? is dedicated to helping other African-American families with similar stories reclaim their land as well. We're going to continue this on the other side of the break. You listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation of Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV the way it should be. Black music. Black History, and more. 30-plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network. Subscribe now. Gain knowledge in minutes from insightful summaries of progressive and socially conscious books. 
Blacklisted gives you access to curated content that'll satisfy your curiosity to learn and understand different perspectives. Empower yourself through inspirational and actionable ideas. It's easy to read or listen to on the go. Blacklisted. Empower yourself. Start your free trial today. And few were racist than me. Racism is a power structure. It was laws and policies that put us in this predicament. It's going to be laws and policies that take us out. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you control the compass of his or her actions because the mind can't do what people that doesn't know. We have it on a 9 10 a.m. superstation. 9 10, the superstation. Detroit's only African American talk radio. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation, the future radio. Hey, I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Friday, October 1st, 2021, and we are live. Calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 if, uh, is the calling number if you have a question or comment. So right before the break, we were talking about... Um, the bill that was signed into law on Thursday, Thursday, uh, September 30th by Governor Gavin Newsom in California. And this is the bill, uh, SB 796, to return the beachfront property in Manhattan Beach to the descendants of Charles and Willa Bruce. OK, Charles and Willa Bruce, African-American couple who in 1912 bought this beachfront property for $1,225. They built up this property into an African-American resort and um, the uh, city of Manhattan beach took the land in 1924 by eminent domain. Now what's interesting is that they said that they needed the land uh, for a recreation center or something like that, but the land sat vacant for years. The land sat vacant for years also. That's that's something very interesting. The, the, the excuse that was given for taking the land, it didn't appear like it was uh, that urgent, okay? Manhattan Beach used eminent domain to seize the land, and they said that they wanted to use it for a park. They wanted to use the land owned by this African-American family uh, for a park, to build a park. But instead, the property languished until it was transferred to the state in 1948 and then transferred to Los Angeles County in 1995. OK, the, the land just sat there for years not being used. So so what was the what was the hurry? Now, they were compensated. They were paid for their land through eminent domain. They were paid the whopping sum. In 1924, $14,125. They were paid the whopping sum of $14,125. The property today is worth about $75 million. And they lost decades of revenue that this land uh, would have generated as well. They lost decades of revenue that this land would have generated also. All right, uh, I wanna go to clip number one here. This is from uh, NBC News, okay? And this deals with uh, the signing 
of uh, the bill SB 796. Bruce's Beach in California returned to black family years after seizure. Let's go to this clip, Jalen. Today, a handshake, nearly a century in the making. <laughs> California Governor Gavin Newsom returning property taken from a black couple to their family. Warm temperatures and clear waters are a hallmark of Bruce's Beach in Southern California. But beyond the sunny skies lies a stormy past. The land was first purchased by Willa and Charles Bruce, a black couple in 1912, a time when segregation largely restricted beach access for blacks. Charles and Willa Bruce, a married couple, had the American dream like many of us have the American dream of owning a piece of property, establishing a business, and that's what they did. The Bruce's built a lodge, cafe, and even a dance hall open to all. The resort became an oasis for black families to swim and socialize without being harassed until the safe haven became a target. Despite all the racial taunts, the KKK, the harassment, the burning of their facilities, the taunting and the harassment of their guests, they survived and flourished for 12 years. And it was at that point that the city of Manan Beach took it upon themselves to say enough is enough. In 1924, Manhattan Beach officials seized the Bruce's land, signing eminent domain and plans to build a park. The Bruce's tried to fight the city to no avail. They received just over $14,500 for their beachfront property. The land remained vacant for three decades. Now, almost 100 years later, a reckoning. This property was stolen from the Bruce's. We're returning what was stolen, what was rightfully theirs. The state returning the prime real estate to the couple's descendants. Descendants who the family says are now scattered throughout the country. Some living at or below the poverty line, despite once owning land now valued in the millions. Most of the wealth equity in this country and for most families is through land or property ownership. People who were not white have not had this mechanism to grow well. Tonight, a new chapter for the family can begin as the sun sets on Bruce's beach. All right, NBC News Now correspondent Priscilla Thompson joins us now on set. So Priscilla, the family has missed out on about 100 years of income that that property could have generated. Any idea how much money they've lost? Uh, we don't know for sure how much money they've lost, but we do know that today this property is worth somewhere around $75 million. And so certainly a lot of money when you think of prime beachfront real estate over the past 100 years. And what's more is people are talking about the generational wealth that that money could have produced, uh, sending someone to medical school or law school if they wanted to go, allowing other entrepreneurs in that family to flourish uh, that may not have been able to do so because that money was not there. Putting a hotel rental property that could have generated income for all those years. I have another question. Does the family feel like giving back the land was enough or do they think that more is owed? 
Well, of course, they're excited to reclaim uh, this property, but there is still the question of all that wealth, generational wealth that has been lost. And not only that, what the family has been asking for is an apology from the city. And that is something the city has refused to do. They are putting up a plaque at the site to acknowledge what has happened. They are condemning what has happened, but they will not apologize. And today we heard the governor say, uh, apologize and say that he was doing that, even though the city has refused to give the family that. Wow. Okay. Priscilla Tom. An, uh, an incredible story time. Okay, so uh, great reporting by Priscilla Thompson for uh, NBC News. Now, the uh, the governor at the press conference, the governor, the the land is owned by Los Angeles County, so he signed off on the bill. Los Angeles County has to transfer the land back to the descendants of the Bruce family. Uh, if we go back to this piece here from uh, NBC News, uh, this one right here, uh, after California move, uh, after California moves to return Bruce's Beach to Black family, a push to recover other seized land, a push to recover other seized land. We're going to go to clip two, uh, just a second, Jalen. So. Uh, if we go back to this article here, uh, uh, Kavon Ward, who was helping the Bruce family get their land back, also started another organization called Where Is My Land? Where Is My Land? Uh, and this organization is dedicated to helping other African-American families with similar stories reclaim what once belonged to them. Among it, its objectives, Where Is My Land? seeks to secure restitution for lost wealth and enterprise. Kavon Ward said, for me, it is more than just land being taken from black people. It was land taken away from black entrepreneurs. It was business, it was community. Uh, one of the uh, families she's working with is the family of Winston Willis, who was a black real estate developer who lost his property in Cleveland, Ohio, in a fight that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, okay? Um, and Winston Willis, who is now 81 years old and lives in a nursing home, built a thriving entertainment and real estate empire near the intersection of 105th and Euclid Avenue in the shadow of the Cleveland Clinic, a world-renowned uh, medical center that perfected heart bypass surgery in 1968. Uh, that same year, Winston Willis won $500,000 gambling, said his sister, Andra Willis Carrasco. Uh, he used the money to expand his growing empire, which included the Jazz Temple, a, legend, uh, a legendary music venue that hosted titans like Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, and John Coltrane. Read more about uh, Winston Willis and his entrepreneurial exploits and the property that the businesses that he owned. Uh, read more about him in this piece here from NBC News. After California moves to return Bruce's Beach to black family, a, a push to recover other seized land. Uh, this article is from September 30th, 2021, updated October 1st, 2021 by Alicia uh, Victoria Lozano and Lindsay Davis. 
okay for NBC News. Now, I want to um, let's look quickly here at this other one from uh, CNN. CNN has a really good article on this as well. Multi-million dollar beach, uh, uh, multi-million dollar beach property taken from black owners in Jim Crow uh, era is clear to be returned. Okay, so this is a good article from um, CNN as well. And they go on and give more detail. Now, I've been studying this case for some months here, but they have some good detail uh, in this article. And they talk about the, uh, it was the Bruce family uh, paid uh, $1,225 in 1912. Let's see, where is that? Yeah, right here. In 1912 and built, built several facilities including a cafe and changing rooms, et cetera. But they also talk about the estimated value here. Uh, on Thursday, Governor Gavin Newsom of California, who defeated dumbass Larry Elder and these other idiots, uh, Republicans that were running uh, in, 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 in this recall election, Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat from California, signed legislation that would enable the county, Los Angeles County, to return the beachfront property to their descendants. The two lots, the two lots are worth approximately $75 million in total, officials confirmed to CNN earlier this year. The houses directly next to the property have hefty price tags of around $7 million. Now, the new law was authored by uh, uh, Senator Steve Bradford. And you heard him in the clip. Senator Steve Bradford, African-American state senator of California. He's the one who authored this bill, SB 796, that Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law. Uh, I want to go to clip two here. This is from uh, the Black News Channel. Uh, start your day with uh, Sherry and Mike, uh, the Black News Channel. And this clip here is from October 1st, 2021. Let's go to clip two, uh, Jalen. It's the last legal hurdle and a fight for a family to get their land back stolen nearly 100 years ago. Governor Gavin Newsom made the trip to Southern California Thursday to sign the bill. It allows local leaders to return Bruce's Beach to descendants of the black people who owned it in the early 20th century. BNC correspondent Walter Morris was in Manhattan Beach for the historic event. And with Governor Gavin Newsom's signature, SB 796 is officially law, allowing Los Angeles County to return Bruce's Beach back to the family. Let me do what apparently Manhattan Beach is unwilling to do, and I want to apologize for the Bruce family. Back in 1912, Charles and Willa Bruce bought the land for $1,200, building a successful beach resort and creating one of the only places in Southern California where African-Americans could enjoy the beach. But years later and after attacks from the KKK, the land was taken by the city of Manhattan Beach under eminent domain. Justice for Bruce's Beach! Activist Kavon Ward began the call to return the land on June 10, 2020. But even nearly a century later, it was still an uphill battle. The number of times my life and safety were threatened. Zero. The number of times Manhattan Beach Police protected me. Zero. The number of dollars we led this fight with, but you can't monetize or you can't quantify the power, the 
to return Bruce's Beach, the law had to change. This property was stolen from the Bruce's. We're returning what was stolen, what was rightfully theirs. Now that the ink is dry, it's up to L.A. County to identify all living relatives of Charlton Willow Bruce and then negotiate the transfer. The Bruce's have found mercy in the unfailing love of Jesus Christ and may his name be honored forever by my family. And a for the family telling BMC they hope other African Americans will follow in their footsteps. You have to get up, you have to speak out, and sometimes you have to raise hell in order to make sure that you get the justice that you deserve. Walter Morris for Start Your Day. All right. Good reporting there from the Black News Channel. Um, if we go, and this is uh, Kavon Ward here that you see on the screen. Uh, if we go back quickly here to this piece from uh, CNN, then we're going to go to clip three. Uh, dealing with the survivors of the Tulsa race massacre. So uh, let's see here. If we back up, white supremacists, white supremacists and Klan members posted no trespassing signs and slashed tires so black families would avoid the area. The KKK attempted to set the property on fire and succeeded in burning down a local black family's home nearby, county officials said earlier this year. OK, this is back uh, before the land was sold, before the land was taken by eminent domain in 1924. The Bruce family was being harassed by the Ku Klux Klan. OK. Um, some white neighbors resented the resort's popularity, and uh, a Bruce family spokesperson told CNN uh, earlier this year. Now, Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn, H-A-H-N, told reporters that when scare tactics did not work, Manhattan Beach declared eminent domain in 1924. Charles and Willa Bruce eventually were paid about $14,125. They died just five years later. The city left the land vacant for several decades and took ownership after, several decades after it took ownership in 1929. Um, today, the property is now a park with a lawn, parking lot, and a lifeguard training facility. Manhattan Beach no longer belongs to Bruce's Beach, no longer belongs to Manhattan Beach. The property was transferred to the state and uh, to the state and to Los Angeles County in 1995, to the state and Los Angeles County in 1995. Um, when the county supervisors attempted to return the property, the beachfront property to the Bruce family last spring, spring 2021. The county supervisors discovered state eminent domain law prevented them from doing so. So a new law had to be written. Um, Los Angeles County Supervisor Holly Mitchell said, quote, if the Bruce's had been allowed to keep the property that they purchased, the impact that would have the, the impact that would have had on generations of not only Bruce family descendants, but the other African-Americans who began to buy parcels surrounding Bruce's beach. The other African-Americans that began to buy parcels surrounding Bruce's beach. 
quote, the law, the law was used to steal this property 100 years ago. And the law today will give it back, said Los Angeles County Supervisor Holly Mitchell. I mean, it's, it said uh, this was uh, I'm sorry. Th this next statement here is from uh, uh, Han, um, the uh, Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Han. This next statement is attributed to the law was used to steal this property 100 years ago and the law today will give it back. Now, Janice Hahn, who will take the next steps to identify the legal heirs of Willa and Charles Bruce and eventually return the property to the family. Okay. Um, state Senator, uh, State Senator Steve Bradford, who authored the bill, SB 796, said the story of Charles and Willa Bruce is not unique in California, is not unique in California. He said, quote, black owned properties experience tremendous amounts of hatred, harassment, hostility and violence at the hand of the Ku Klux Klan, who cold bloodedly threatened the Bruce's and other families who dared to enjoy their property, end quote. And other families who dared to enjoy their property. So when we talk about an attack on the accumulation of generational wealth by African-Americans. We had attacks through legal means and we had attacks through extrajudicial means and domestic terrorism, white domestic terrorism. Okay, so um, read this, this piece also from CNN. Uh, this is a multi-million dollar uh, beachfront property taken from black owners in Jim Crow era is cleared to be returned. This is from uh, October 1st, 19, uh, 2021, October 1st, 2021. All right. So there are more developments dealing with that story. We'll try to let you know. Uh, I want to shift gears here and go to an update dealing with the three survivors of the Tulsa race massacre and the fight to uh for them to get uh reparations some type of reparations now the entire city of tulsa uh definitely definitely deserves that but you have three survivors uh the only three survivors of the tulsa race massacre and they are uh, definitely entitled to reparations as well so they were in court on uh, Tuesday, September 28th. Uh, and this court case is being presided over by uh, District Judge Caroline Wall, District Judge Caroline Wall. Uh, I saw an article from the grill.com uh, a few days before they went to court. And in researching this, um, this topic for this show, um, ABC News has a good article as well from September 29th. A uh, hundred years, a hundred years after uh, after Tulsa race massacre, survivors and descendants continue to seek justice in court. One hundred years after Tulsa race massacre, survivors and descendants continue to seek uh, justice in court. So you had. Leslie Benningfield Randall, Viola Fletcher, and Hugh Van Ellis, who were in court on Tuesday, September 28th, 
uh, pleading their case more than 100 years after the Tulsa race massacre, June 1st, 1921. Um, and many now before this past June 1st, 2021, 100th year anniversary, you still had a lot of people who did not know about the Tulsa race massacre. I was I was surprised. Um, well, I wasn't really surprised. But, um, still somewhat surprised. In 1921, a mob of white vigilantes eviscerated uh, Tulsa's Greenwood uh, district, the Tulsa's Greenwood neighborhood, which was in North Tulsa, uh, known at the time as Black Wall Street due to its affluence and uh, successful business enterprise. Black Wall Street was basically the name of the business district, which began at the intersection of Greenwood, Archer and Pine. Um and it was also called the Greenwood District, that business district. But North Tulsa was the area that African-Americans lived in. Uh, Greenwood was a, a business, it was a district within North Tulsa where African-Americans lived. Uh, white people lived in South Tulsa. What separated North Tulsa from South Tulsa was the railroad, railroad track. Uh, now, the, the racist violence killed at least 300 people, wounded thousands, and destroyed some 35 uh, um, 35 square blocks of commercial and residential property. They say 35 acres. Okay. Uh, estimates are between 10 to 15, really basically, uh, basically about 15,000 white people invaded North Tulsa. And uh, one of the best books on this is by Hannibal, Hannibal B. Johnson, which deals with uh, uh, Black Wall Street and the resurrection of the Greenwood District. By Hannibal B. Johnson. Uh, quote, this lawsuit seeks to get justice and repair the 1921 Tulsa race massacre and the 100 years of continuing harm, said attorney Demario Solomon Simmons, who was representing the plaintiffs. He was on Roland Martin Unfiltered uh, this past week. I think it was either two. I think it was probably Wednesday. It was one of those days. I think it was after they went to court. Uh, so check out Roland Martin Unfiltered, and you can see the uh, interview that Roland did with uh, Demario Simmons, uh, Demario Solomon Simmons. Now, he said, "What we want, what he said, what we say in a lawsuit, and what we believe we can prove is that the massacre created what's called a public nuisance. The massacre created what's called a public nuisance, and that nuisance." has continued unabated, meaning has not been fixed or repaired since it was instituted, end quote. Now we know that the insurance claims, it was somewhere around 1,200 businesses destroyed. We know that the insurance claims that were filed on businesses, uh, none of the insurance claims were paid out. Uh, we know the African-Americans uh, in North Tulsa were blamed for the race for, for the race massacre themselves, they were blamed, blamed for it, uh, blamed for it happening. And we rebuilt North Tulsa. We rebuilt Black Wall Street. We rebuilt that Greenwood district with our own dollars. And we got help from surrounding African-American townships as well, because Oklahoma had about 50 African-American townships and uh, a lot of the early black landowners in Tulsa got land because of the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866 and the Dawes Allotment Act of uh, 1887. 
and the we know Tulsa was founded by Creek Indians uh, around right around 1834 who get pushed off their land in southeastern United States because of the Indian Removal Act of uh, 1830 that was signed by President Andrew Jackson. Okay, there's an article I'm looking for here. Okay, we'll find that. Yeah, I want to go to this clip here from, uh, this is from ABC News. Now, this clip here is from June 1st, 2021. That gives some background information on uh, the Tulsa Race Massacre and uh, repairing the damage as well. Let's go to this clip. And while the massacre in Tulsa is often described as a riot started by a white mob, just how organized the attack was and to what extent the government helped is still being debated today. Tulsa's police department deputized white residents and helped to arm them. Witnesses also reported seeing the neighborhood bombed from the air. So let's go to Leah wright Regor, ABC News contributor and associate professor at Brandeis University, to help us separate some of the facts from fiction. Leah, thanks for being here. You know, from what... We know at this point, how did this attack come together and what role did the government and law enforcement play in it? So I think one of the things that we know kind of in the standard story that is emerging about the Tulsa massacre is this idea that there was some kind of interaction between a black man and a white woman. However, what we also know is that the Tulsa area and white residents and white mobs in Tulsa had a long history of really terrorizing black residents in that environment, engaging in things like property theft, lynching, over-policing, harassment, violence, things of this nature. So when we see an explosion happen in 1921 over this two-and-a-half-day period, it's not unexpected. On top of that, what we also know is that this coverage, this idea of some kind of uh, improper interaction between a black man and a white woman is also covered for this idea of uh, uh, suppressing black independence and autonomy and black capital, right, and plundering black capital. So what we're seeing with the Tulsa massacre and what we saw with the Tulsa massacre is the emergence of really this kind of high point of violence that is designed to reassert authority over the black residents of Tulsa for who had been showing too much power, too much autonomy, and too much independence during the period. Now, this was one of the worst incidents of racial violence in American history, but it was largely ignored in history classes, or at the very least, some key parts of the story were left out. So why is that, and is it being taught now? So one of the things that we know is that Tulsa is not the only incident of wide, wild uh, and disorder amongst mob violence. There are dozens, if not hundreds of incidents that precede Tulsa and then follow after it. But we, what we also know is that there is a widespread effort to cover up what happens in Tulsa. And it's not just by the residents, the white residents of Tulsa, who essentially disappear the people, uh, the black residents of uh, Tulsa. This is actually why we don't have an accurate number of the amount of people that died during or were murdered during the Tulsa incident, because people go to great lengths to cover it up. We also know that the media chooses not to tell the story of Tulsa, particularly mainstream media. So we know that the black press keeps this alive. Black communities keep the story of Tulsa and other areas like it alive. They teach it by passing it down through oral history. Black newspapers cover this at length right on through the present. 
when mainstream media sources choose to erase it because it's much more difficult, I think, and much more complex to actually address it rather than just disappear it altogether. It makes it much easier to move on and to say that things like institutional racism, systemic racism, mob violence don't actually exist when they continue to exist on and on. It's just that the media doesn't cover it. Uh, so, Leah, no one was ever held accountable for this massacre. And now, as we heard, there are discussions about reparations for survivors and their descendants. So what might those reparations look like? Well, I think the first thing, and, I, you know, earlier in the program, you guys talked about this, and I think this is exactly right. There has to be a full accounting of what happened. And what we do know is that a number of sources, including black media sources, kept really good records in oral histories of what happened at the time. We even know that the National Archives kept records through the Red Cross. This is the first incident, the first kind of non-natural disaster that the Red Cross intervenes in and provides support for during that moment. So we need a full accounting of how much property was lost, how much property was seized. How did the state and local government and police participate in the violence and in the theft of land and property and wealth? So we need a full accounting of that. And from there, we can begin to calculate what a number might look like. I've heard people talking about this $100 million uh, number. What we actually know is that the number, right, when we, we think about the compounded harm that is done from the Tulsa incident and other incidents like this, is much greater than that. So we do have to start thinking any kind of reconciliation is going to have to uh, account for right, the loss of wealth, the loss of property, the loss of independence, the loss of lives. That's where we have to begin. All right, Leah Wright Rucker, thank you for joining us as always. Thanks for having me. Okay. All right. That is from uh, ABC News. That is from June 1st, 2021, back during the uh, 100th commemoration of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Uh, very quickly here, the uh, we've talked about this article before. Uh, this is from History.com, official website of the History Channel. Nine entrepreneurs who helped build Tulsa's, uh, who helped build, build Tulsa's Black Wall Street. Nine entrepreneurs who helped build Tulsa's, Tulsa's Black Wall Street. And in the article, it talks about, um, let me see which one is that, uh, right here. I think this is uh, before the Greenwood District was established. African Americans came to uh, came to Oklahoma in the mid nineteenth century as slaves of the five civilized tribes of Native Americans. The term used for the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole Indians, who were forced from their lands in the southeast part of the United States uh, because of the Indian Removal Act of eighteen thirty. Resettling in Oklahoma, then known as Indian Territory, after the Civil War, under the terms of the Treaties of 1866 and the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866, these African-Americans were emancipated with some integrating into the tribes, a relationship that will later provide freedmen with their own land. All right. Those watching on Facebook and YouTube, keep watching for a few more minutes. We're out of time here. Right now, it's correct. Wrong behavior It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you Sunday. Peace. All right. Stand by, everybody. Okay. So, as I've said numerous times before, the Black Freeman Indian Treaties and the land 
that these African-Americans got from these Native American nations, especially the Creek Indian nation, that laid the foundation for African-American land ownership in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay, all that history is connected. All that, all that history is connected. The relic quote, this is Hannibal B. Johnson. Hannibal B. Johnson is one of the best historians on uh, Tulsa and uh, Black Wall Street. Uh, Hannibal B. Johnson, historian, author of Black Wall Street 100, an American city grapples with this historical racial trauma. He said, quote, the relative wealth of some black folks in Oklahoma comes in part through their connection to the tribes, the Native American tribes, and their land ownership, and their land ownership, quote unquote. The Dawes Allotment Act of 1887 authorized the government to divide tribal territories in two allotments for individual Native Americans, which included black members. Okay, the, those former, those slaves that they owned had to be set free and be compensated with land. All right. As word spread that the Indian territory was safe, was a safe place for African-Americans to settle between 1865 and 1920, more than 50 black townships were founded in Oklahoma. More than 50 black townships were founded in Oklahoma. Oklahoma probably had the largest number of African-American townships in the country. Okay, read this article here. We've talked about this before. Nine entrepreneurs who helped build Tulsa's Black Wall Street. All right, and these are, um, and this is something that we, we deal with in the online course that I teach from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968 as well, because we, we cover that period of history. Now, very quickly here, and then uh, we'll talk for a minute about the uh, online classes uh, that I teach on the weekend, because we have um, understanding the transatlantic slave trade starting up on Sunday. Uh, if we go back to this one here quickly from ABC News. Uh, so the, the case, the fate of the lawsuit by the three survivors of the Tulsa race massacre Leslie Benningfield Randall, Viola Fletcher, and Hughes Van Ellis. The fate of the suit is now in the hands of District Judge Caroline Wall, who is set to rule on whether the lawsuit can proceed. Okay. Um, let's see here. Okay, in the picture that I showed of uh, Hughes Van Ellis and Mother Fletcher, that was from early this year when they testified uh, at a, a House of Representatives hearing. Okay, all right. Hugh, um, Hughes um, Van Hughes Van Ellis. Uh, well, uh, Mother Fletcher, one of the survivors of the massacre, testified in front of a congressional committee in May 2021, saying, quote, I still see black men shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire, end quote. Uh, she said, I still 
see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre. I have lived through the massacre every day, end quote. Um, Viola Fletcher, also known as Mother Fletcher, was seven years old at the time of the Tulsa race massacre. She said, our country may forget this history, but I cannot, I will not, and other survivors do not, and our descendants do not. Now, a Tulsa City uh, spokesperson declined a request for a comment by ABC News on Wednesday, um, Wednesday, September 27th, I'm sorry, uh, that'd be uh, Wednesday, uh, uh, September 29th. This uh, citing ongoing litigation. The spokesperson re, uh, re, uh, declined to give a comment citing the ongoing litigation. The city of Tulsa has argued in court filings that among other things, too much time has passed since the claims in the suit were made. But the city of Tulsa and also the county, they own land that used to be owned by African-Americans that was taken from African-Americans, whether it's eminent domain or what have you, okay? And we also know that the expressways ran through in, in the early 1970s. The expressways ran through in the early 1970s and wiped out uh uh, took land away from us as well. And that's something that came up. Well, actually, that's something I knew about already because I read Hannibal B, Hannibal B. Johnson's book back in 2014 when I did a extensive lecture dealing with the history of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But during this uh, 100th commemoration of Tulsa, that is something that came out also. Uh, I-244 and um, I think it's US 75. That's something that came out in when, when the history was being exposed to what happened. Um, yeah, Interstate 244 was one, so that runs through right around 1970, and that wipes out uh businesses, and then you're going to have uh. Uh, U.S. 75 also. All right. So check out those articles. Okay, if you like this type of information, you can uh, support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the ehn show paypal.me forward slash the ehn show um we're here six days a week this helps us keep doing the research stay on the air uh keep broadcasting and this is our official cash app account dollar sign the ehn show s-h-o-w so when you go to it it'll say michael and show my picture there okay these other ones here are fake african history network cash app accounts that's not me Now, also with the uh, online course, if you want to pay through PayPal, um, just email me, uh, show at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Just email me, show at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Or if there's other 
payment arrangements that you want to make or anything like that, um, let me know. So we have class number one of understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understand the transatlantic slave trade uh, starting up Sunday, uh, starts up Sunday, 12 noon to 2 p.m., 10-week online course. We do a thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place also, okay? And I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have uh, book references, articles, video clips, guest speakers. We have a ton of um, information here, okay? And we deal with uh, ancient Africa. We deal with uh, Nubia, Ta-Nehisi, Ethiopia, uh, ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt. Uh, we deal with uh, some of the understanding, some of the mythology and uh, netters and stories of Asar, Aset, and Heru, who the Greeks called Osiris, Isis, and Horus. Um, so we take you through our history, take you through our chronology of history, so we can see what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place, okay? Um, we deal with Aset, and we deal with the um, how Europeans in Europe were worshiping the Black Madonna and Child before, even before the Moors go in in 711 AD. And as you have a rise of European powers coming out of the Dark Ages, you're going to have a rise of the European phenotype as well. And you're going to have uh, these images that were African reinterpreted as European. We talk about. Uh, Dr. David M. Hotel's book, The First Americans Were Africans, documented evidence in the African presence in the Americas dating back at least 51,700 years ago. We've had him speak to our class before uh, as well, and I've interviewed him a number of times. We know page 14 of his book, The First Americans Were Africans, documented evidence deals with the discovery from Dr. Albert Goodyear in 2004 in Allendale County, South Carolina where they discovered uh, 13 different types of evidence that thoroughly documents an African presence in the land we call the United States of America dating back at least 51,700 years ago. And they found uh, artifacts, architecture, campsites, carvings, uh, Egyptian writings, footprints and lava, genetic M174D haploid groups dealing with DNA and genetics, linguistics, uh, paintings, skulls, skeletons, structures, and tools and uh, 13 different types of evidence uh, fairly documented in an African presence in this country going back at least 51,700 years ago. And this was the Khoisan. The Khoisan, um, who have the oldest DNA on the planet, are the ancestors to Thainu and the Twa. They go all around the world and they were here. Uh, this article from uh, 2004, November 18, 2004, by Dr. Albert Goodyear, well, it's about the discovery by Dr. Albert Goodyear. Um, it's called New Evidence Puts Man in North America 50,000 Years Ago. Here's a picture of Dr. Albert Goodyear. He's a white uh, archaeologist. And a summary from ScienceDaily.com, which is a scientific journal, scientific website. They have scientific discoveries, archaeological discoveries. It says radiocarbon tests of carbonized plant remains where artifacts were unearthed last May along the Savannah River in Allendale County by University of South Carolina archaeologists. Uh, Dr. Albert Goodyear indicate that the sediments containing these artifacts are at least 50,000 years old, meaning that humans inhabited North America long before the last ice age. Okay, so who were these humans? This is before Native Americans even come into existence. 
Okay. This is before Europeans are on the face of the earth. All right. So we do our archaeological discoveries that are causing uh, scientists and paleontologists to rethink everything like this one here that deals with stone tools found on the Greek island of Crete uh, that date back 130,000 years ago. And Crete has been an island for more than five million years. And uh, this is from New York Times, uh, February 15th, 2010 on on Crete, new evidence of very ancient mariners. So it says that um, uh, this discovery seems to push back Mediterranean voyaging back more than 100,000 years. Uh, and previous to this discovery, um, seafaring in the Mediterranean, uh, they, they thought dated back only 10,000 to 12,000 years ago. But this seems to push that back at least 100,000 years. Um, we deal with things like the lost city of Tanis Heraklion, the lost city of Egypt. And this discovery was revealed in April 2013 by Frank Gaudio and his his team. It's believed Tanis Heraklion was built around 8th century B.C., but it was swallowed into the sea. So in this discovery, they show what they found at, at, at the bottom of the sea. They found 16 foot tall statues, 700 acres, 700 anchors, countless gold coins, 64 ships. Uh, down there at the, uh, the, beneath the surface of Egypt's Bay of Abukir. This was a big discovery. Um, I read a lot about this when this came out in uh, 2013. I actually have some footage of them underneath the water. These, these are some of the discoveries that they made underneath the water. So then we deal with uh, Freemasonry and how it has its origins coming out of ancient Kemet as well. But some of the things we deal with in the class, this 10-week online class, on this, uh, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what it didn't teach you in school. Um, we do a, what was the transatlantic slave trade? What were some events that led up to it ha happening? And we actually deal with a chronology of history and go back thousands of years and show how different events are connected. What role did Christopher Columbus play? Because Columbus was central to uh, laying the foundation for slavery, racism, capitalism, and the exploitation of indigenous people, even though. The transatlantic slave trade goes back to 1441 with uh, the Portuguese going into Mauritania. OK, um, but Columbus is really going to help spread that with his four voyages and conquering uh, Jamaica and Haiti, Puerto Rico, Honduras, Panama, things like this. His four voyages from 1492 to uh, 1504. And we know that uh, Haiti's been in the news in the past few months. Haiti, Cuba and Jamaica, these were all islands that Columbus conquered on behalf of Spain a little more than 500 years ago. And these islands, these nations are still feeling the effects of what happened a little more than 500 years ago in Spain conquering these islands. We know that uh, the western portion of Hispaniola, uh, where Haiti and Saint Domin uh, uh, Saint Dom uh, the Haiti and the Dominican Republic, Republic are today, um, we know the western portion was um, the colony that the French called Saint Dominique, and the French are going to take Saint uh, take Saint Dominique from the Spanish. It's originally going to be conquered by the Spanish. Okay, so we take you through this history. Um, we look at when did Africans first come to the U.S. as slaves, and even before 1619, you know the Spanish were taking Africans into the territory we call South Carolina, that South Carolina Georgia area, in 1526. These Africans are going to rise up after a few weeks and overthrow their oppressors and disappear. It's believed they went to live with uh, Native Americans. 
did Africans sell themselves into slavery? We deal with that complicated history. Um, were African people in America before the transatlantic slave trade? Yeah, we were. African people are the original Americans. We were here. Be, we were here in this land before anybody else was here. Now that doesn't mean the transatlantic slave trade didn't didn't happen. Yeah, it did. It just happened thousands of years um, later. That's all. That's why you have to understand the chronology of history. Transatlantic slave trade happened. It just happened thousands of years later. But no, this was this was our land stolen from us, and it's been stolen multiple times. Because the Louisiana Purchase of eighteen o three, where France sells eight hundred twenty eight thousand square miles of land to the U S. France had no authority to sell that land. That land was owned by Native Americans and African people who were here. France had no authority to sell that land. So you had one thief selling the land to another thief. Um, so we deal with uh, where African people in America is before the transatlantic slave trade, the 800 year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors. And what the Moors take into Europe, the Moors are taking the teachings coming out of the Nile Valley region of Africa, especially ancient Kemet. They're taking these teachings into Europe. This is going to bring Europe out of the dark ages. They're introducing new surgical techniques. They're introducing new foods and musical instruments. Um, they're introducing uh, new types of weapons, uh, the periodic tables, what they call alchemy. Today we call it chemistry. They're introducing the periodic tables and all different types of things like this. Different. Uh, they're introducing art and architecture. They helped civilize Europeans. All this came back to kick us in the behind. And this is why I say I wish we had never taught them. And really, when you understand the, the chronology of this history, the transatlantic slave trade is really Europeans getting revenge on the African Moors for what happened in Europe. The transatlantic slave trade didn't just fall out of the sky. The, the Portuguese are the first ones involved in about 1441. They dominate for the first 200 years. Spain and Portugal is where the Moors are going right into, which is right above Morocco. The, the Portuguese were the first ones involved in the transatlantic slave trade. The Spanish are going to be next. And the Moors are changing the complexion of Europe to various extents, especially in Spain and Portugal, because they're intermixing into the European population. Okay, uh, so we deal with uh, shocking archaeological discoveries that are causing experts to rethink everything. The role insurance companies uh, played as well, because insurance companies took on insurance policies on slave ships and enslaved Africans on plantations. Freemasonry, America and the Founding Fathers, origins of the term America and Africa. Uh, we do a lot. You know, the bubonic plague, the Black Death, it hits and spurts from 1347 to 1400. Europe is going to lose between a quarter to a third of the population, somewhere between 25 million to 75 million people over the course of uh, decades based upon the, uh, attributed to the bubonic plague, the black death. Um, we talk about Mansa Musa, we talk about Ghana, Songhai and Mali connection between Mansa Musa and T'Challa in the film, black Panther, uh, T'Challa is the richest man in the Marvel comic universe. We know Mansa Musa was the, uh, richest man in the history of the world became emperor of the Mali empire, 1312 AD. So we talk about, ancient Kemet and the Netter and, and we deal with the film Black Panther and show how the film Black Panther relates to African history, African culture, African language, spiritual systems. We know the Panther deity Bast in Black Panther comes from Bastet, the, uh, uh, the cat in ancient Kemet, who was a Netter. Um, 
ancient Egyptian goddess worshiped in the form of a lioness and later a cat. And uh, Bastet was the uh, netter of warfare in lower Kemet, lower Egypt, worshiped as early as the second dynasty, uh, uh, 2890 BCE before the common era. Uh, we do it with the word Wakanda means, because uh, Wakanda is a real word. We find it in the Omaha Paka language, Sioux Indian language. It's also uh, in Key Congo. It's a Bantu uh, word as well. Uh, Wakanda means possesses secret powers. We deal with Columbus and where Columbus went on his four voyages. We just go cr uh, chronologically throughout history. And Columbus never came to the land that we call the United States of America. Um, the closest Columbus came here was Cuba, which is about 90 miles away. This is where he went on his four voyages. He goes into the Bahamas, Cuba, Hispaniola, was Haiti and, and, and Dominican Republic. That's in 1492. Third voyage, um, September 1493, he goes into the West Indies. He goes into Puerto Rico and Jamaica. Okay, in 1494. Uh, third voyage, uh, so that's second voyage. Third voyage, May 1498, goes into Trinidad and, the, uh, Trinidad and Venezuela and mainland uh, in South America. Uh, fourth voyage, May 1504, he goes into Panama and Honduras in Central America. Okay, he, he never comes to the land we call the United States of America, but we still feel the effects of Columbus conquering those territories, those, those islands, on behalf of the Spanish crown. King Ferdinand and uh, Queen Isabella. Um, so those are just a few of the things that we deal with. Uh, we talk about the fake Willie Lynch letter, 1712 also, because Willie Lynch never historically existed. We should throw that in the garbage can. Okay, so those are just a few of the things that we deal with in the 10-week online course, all right? So if any of that interests you, um, be sure to register for the class. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived, recorded. You can go back and watch them anytime. Now, you can see me in the class. I can't see you. It's not like a Zoom call at work, and you can see everybody there, right? It's not like that. Uh, so you don't have to worry about, you know, you can be in your pajamas if you want to. You can have a bonnet on or what have you. Um, we have a lot of text chat in the class. So you can ask questions also. So the course is regularly $130. It's on sale $80. And you have access to the class even after the course is over with you can go back and watch the whole thing so next year if you want to watch the full 10-week class that's fine and since it's archived you don't have to worry about being in class at a certain time so I teach this one the second class i teach meets on saturdays 12 noon to 2 p.m from the civil war to the civil rights movement and black power 1865 to 1968 this class basically picks up where understanding the transatlantic slave trade leads off, okay? So we deal with the Civil War, 1861, 1865, and some events that lead up to the Civil War taking place. The Louisiana Purchase of 1803, the um, Texas winning its independence in 1836, Texas becoming the state in the Union, 1845, Mexican-American War, 1845, 1846, Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848, that ends the Mexican-American War. Out of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the U.S. is going to get the uh, land that makes up California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Nevada. They get all this land. Uh, Mexico loses about a third of their, of their territory. And the U.S. gets all this land. 
And then you're going to have to organize this land and determine which uh, territories are going to have slavery, which are not, things like this. So you have the Compromise of 1850. And the Compromise of 1850 consists of five bills, and some of that has to do with organizing uh, that new land uh, coming from the uh, uh, the uh, coming from the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. But the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 is one of the bills that's part of the Compromise of 1850. And the Fugitive Slave Act intensifies the abolitionist movement, makes it more dangerous for runaway slaves who run into the North and causes more of them to go into Canada. Okay. And the Compromise of 1850 is a result of the uh, is a consequence of the Mexican Mexican American War of 1846 to 1848. Then you have the um, Kansas Nebraska Act of 1840. Uh, the Kansas Nebraska Act of 1854. Kansas Nebraska Act of 1854 is going to uh, leave up to those people moving into that new territory of Kansas and Nebraska to determine whether or not they want to have slavery. OK, um, as opposed to uh, it being dictated to them by the federal government. OK, they, they have popular sovereignty. So the Kansas, Nebraska Act of 1854 is going to lead to uh, a conflict called um, Bleeding Kansas. OK, Bleeding Kansas. Bleeding Kansas was armed conflict between pro-slavery groups and anti-slavery groups. Uh, pro-slavery groups and anti-slavery groups in Kansas. And there is going to be armed conflict between these groups from about um, 1855 to about 1859. Okay, that's that's uh, called Bleeding Kansas. Now, as a result of the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, you're going to have the Republican Party founded in 1854 as a direct backlash. And the Republican Party was organized by groups of abolitionists and you're going to have people who are uh, some people who were members of the Whig party, W-H-I-G, which is a, a pre a, a political party that existed before the Republican party. They, they're founded around 1834, the Whig party and the Whig party is dying out. So you're going to have some of those members who helped to form the Republican party to be the counter to the democratic party. Contrary to popular belief, democratic party did not create slavery. I hear People saying, I don't know where the hell y'all got that from. Um, Democratic Party wasn't founded in 1828. So for the majority of the time slavery existed in this country, you didn't have a Democratic Party or a Republican Party. Uh, I've heard people calling the radio show saying Democrats created slavery. I'm like, please cite your evidence for that. That's not true at all. Um, so we deal with history leading up to the civil war and then deal with the civil war reconstruction, 1865, 1877 compromise of 1877, which, uh, ends, uh, reconstruction. We deal with the, 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 the uh, failing of the, uh, Freedman's bank, 1874. Uh, we deal with the Freedman's bureau being shut down as well. And when the, when the Freedman's bank, collapses in 1874 we lose 2.9 million dollars in deposits in the freedman's bank we we still haven't recovered from the freedman's bank failing and 
even the Freedmen's Bureau, Freedmen's Bureau was poorly managed. It wasn't properly funded. Uh, it should have lasted longer. Uh, it was created in March 1865 by Act of Congress. The free, I mean, if you're enslaved for 246 years, you should have help for more than like a decade or so. You should, you should have a bureau to address those issues for decades, at least a hundred years or something. Um, so we take you throughout that history. And then we did the Jim Crow era, and we look at the uh, we look at the attempt to uh, by white supremacists. Here's Sarah Rector. Sarah Rector became the richest Afro-American girl in the country in the early 1900s, right around 1912, 1913. And her family was, uh, uh, she was of uh, enslaved Creek Indian ancestry, okay? So after slavery ends, because of the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866 and the Dawes Allotment Act of 1887, her family gets land. Oil is discovered on her land allotment and she becomes a millionaire. Sarah Rector, R-E-C-T-O-R. -E so we deal with, we, we also show the, the laws and policies that were put in place um, after Reconstruction ends as well. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 was crucial. That is extremely important uh, because President Ulysses S. Grant declares martial law. Um, he declares martial law in nine counties in South Carolina to crack down on the Ku Klux Klan in October of 1871. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so we deal with different massacres that take place, Colfax Massacre, Yafala Massacre in Alabama, um, uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi uh, Massacre as well, 1874, all, all these massacres. But we deal with how uh, also the laws and policies put in place to take back control of political office in the South, take back control of the uh, state legislatures, okay? Like the Mississippi Plan of 1890, okay? The Mississippi Plan of 1890, where the Mississippi State Convention um, meets and uh, the, the judge that is presiding over the Mississippi State Convention he says, we are here to exclude the Negro. His name was Judge Solomon Saladin Calhoun. He said, we are here to exclude the Negro because African-Americans were the majority population in Mississippi, okay? And we were electing people in the office. We were electing African-Americans in the office. And what you're going to have is this uh, attempt by these white supremacists to pass laws to suppress the African-American vote, just like they're doing uh, now Republicans in, in uh, 49 state legislatures have over 400 bills proposed. They've already passed bills in Texas and in Georgia. The same thing happened after Reconstruction ended. And Mississippi, what Mississippi did was known as the Mississippi Plan. And that became the model that other southern states adopted, South Carolina, 1895, Louisiana, 1898, Alabama, 1901. But if you go, if you look at poll taxes, Florida was the state that had the first poll taxes in 1889. That's a year before the Mississippi State uh, Convention. And at these state conventions, what they're doing is rewriting the state constitution. And they're writing into the state constitution poll taxes and literacy tests to lock African-Americans out of voting, greatly reduce 
the number of African-Americans who can vote. And in some cases, like Louisiana, they're also instituting uh, property ownership requirements to be able to vote as well. At the, at the 1890 Mississippi State Convention, a new constitution was adopted that included a literacy test and poll tax for eligible voters. Under the new literacy test requirement, a potential voter had to be able to read any section of the Mississippi State Constitution or understand any section when read to him or give a reasonable interpretation of any section of the Mississippi State Constitution. Now, a lot of times the white person that you're talking about, the registrar, a lot of times they were illiterate. If you watch Eyes on the Prize, if you watch Eyes on the, the original Eyes on the Prize that dealt with from 1955 with the lynching of Emmett Till, August 28, 1955, through the signing of the Voting Rights Act, 1965. They talk about the Mississippi State Constitution and the literacy tests. Okay. And this is one of the reasons why you needed a voting rights after 1965 to strike all that down and make all that illegal. These were obstacles to the 15th Amendment that were being passed after Reconstruction ends in 1877 to specifically design to suppress the African-American vote and lock us out of as much as possible out of voting and prevent African-Americans from being elected into public office because during Reconstruction, there were about 2,000 African-Americans who got elected into public office. In South Carolina, the majority of the state legislature were African-American men in uh, during Reconstruction. James Vardaman in 1890, who served in the Mississippi State Legislature, said there is no use to equivocate or lie about the matter, okay? Um, it, it, referring to the Mississippi State uh, Convention. He said, quote, in Mississippi, we have in our constitution legislated against the racial pecu uh, peculiarities of the Negro. When that device fails, we will resort to something else, end quote. This was specifically, they're specifically writing laws to suppress the African-American vote so they can fully take back control of these political offices and state legislatures in the South. The impact of the legislation was swift. By 1910, registered voters among African-Americans dropped to 15% in Virginia and under 2% in both Alabama and Mississippi. According to historian Donald G. Nyman in his book, Promises to Keep African-Americans in the Constitutional Order, 1776 to the Present. Um, read this piece here from History.com, how Jim Crow era laws suppress the African-American vote for generations. Okay, so we take you through the Jim Crow era, we take you through World War One, World War II, Great Migration, 1915 to 1970, six million African-Americans migrate out the South, up North and out West, Civil Rights Movement and Black Power Movement, okay? Uh, so that class, now you can take the classes in any order, you can take both of them at the same time if you want to, but the second class, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. This class basically picks up where understanding the transatlantic slave trade leaves off because I had so much information. Um, I couldn't get all of it into understanding the transatlantic slave trade. And this 100 plus year period of history is crucial. So each class we go through and analyze approximately a 100 year period of history or maybe a little more 
than 100 years to understand what happened to us after slavery ended. What were the laws and policies put in place and to put us in a predicament we're in right now so we understand where we go from here. And when we, when we understand this history that happened after Reconstruction ended, you see this history repeating itself. You see the, the cycles uh, repeating themselves. So we have to understand this history so we can keep this cycle from happening again, okay? A people's history and culture teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past in the present and the future to meet the needs of the community, but also so we don't keep making the same mistakes as well, okay? So you can register for this class. Now, this one here is on sale for a very limited time, only $70, regularly $130. And we do sessions live all the sessions are archived as well from the civil war to the civil rights movement and black power 1865 to 1968 uh we posted the links here but it's also at african right on the home page so just scroll down you'll see information about the radio show we have a cell uh african history network.com also um current promotion at 20 percent off uh dvd lectures and downloads uh, orders of a hundred dollars or more use promo code eight hn 20 off 2021 okay that's going through the weekend um scroll down and you see the information for the uh classes just click on register here it takes you to the next page and uh, click on enroll as soon as you enroll you can start watching the content you can join us in class okay uh and if you have if you have any questions or um, need any special accommodations as well, you can email us at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com um, we'll try to accommodate you, also if you want to pay through PayPal, we can set that up as well, alright, we have to get out of here, remember at the African History Network, we focus on educating empowering and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct wrong behavior it's not over till we win Wakanda forever. We'll be, we'll be back um, uh, Sunday. We're on for two hours on Sunday, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Remember, right now is correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win Wakanda forever. And we'll talk to you next time. Peace. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our story, our way. Black TV the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30 plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network. Subscribe now. Hi, I'm Joel Wilson, President and CEO of JCW Computer Consulting, LLC, a technology implementation firm with over 20 years of satisfying customers. We offer a full spectrum of industry top-tier branded services. We are an authorized partner or reseller for Lenovo, Zoom, T-Mobile, Microsoft 365, and Surface tablets, Google Workspace, Acer, Asus, Samsung, PCmatic security software, and many more. Our online store features laptops, Chromebooks, computers, printers, accessories, and software. Businesses, take advantage of our free one-hour Zoom tech consultation and know 
we offer top nationwide high-speed internet service providers, voice over IP, and cellular phone services. Home users, don't miss our current in-stock Chromebook inventory. Please visit us at jcwcc.com or call 215-879-6701. Gain knowledge in minutes from insightful summaries of progressive and socially conscious books. Blacklisted gives you access to curated content that'll satisfy your curiosity to learn and understand different perspectives. Empower yourself through inspirational and actionable ideas. It's easy to read or listen to on the go. Blacklisted. Empower yourself. Start your free trial today.